Hey, thanks for listening in. And uh, we're going to go through a 10-week series uh, about the Gospel of John, and we're entitling it So That You May Believe. And here at Sanctuary, uh, we're just glad to have you online and uh, study the Word of God with us. But today is about the person of John the Baptist, and then we'll go through uh, the book of John pretty much chapter by chapter, but also through the... um, the way John breaks it out with seven significant signs about Jesus, seven witnesses of Jesus, and seven significant statements that Jesus made uh, that really prove who he is, that he is the Messiah. And I'll, I'll just be honest, going through this series uh, just on my own, I've come out just with a deeper revelation and just communion with who Christ is. So I, I, I'm sure as you go through this with us, uh, it's going to impact your life, and uh, you're going to learn and know Jesus uh, in a more personal way. So let's kick it off uh, today, and I'll, and I'll pray. Father, I pray for every person listening to this online, God, that they would uh, know you in a powerful way. Lord, I pray that uh, you'd anoint my words to speak what you have for me to speak, and God, that we would go deeper in your word, Father, to know uh, Jesus is alive. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He's our personal Messiah, and that uh, he has sent his Holy Spirit that we might know him even more. And so uh, uh, help us in this next moment, in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, just like you were going to uh, read a book, we would want you to know about the author. And like if you were going to read uh, Huckleberry Finn, we'd want you to know about Mark Twain, just a little bit about him. And so let's talk about the author uh, of the book of John. Let's just give you the, the, the life and the story of this man. So John, uh, at the first, around the first century, uh, you know, we're going all the way back to the time of Jesus and, and is ancient Israel. John is born in Galilee, in a town of Bethsaida, which is close to Capernaum. So this is on the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing community. Uh, uh, he is not educated or rabbinically trained. We, we know that from Acts chapter 4. He's the son of a guy named Zebedee and Salome, which is Mary's sister. That is Jesus' mom's uh, sister. So, uh, you know, this is a tight-knit. It's kind of like in a small town like where we are in central Louisiana. Everybody's related to somebody. So here's this fishing family. Uh, They're a middle-class family. Dad has got some servants. Mom was able to financially support Jesus' uh, ministry. We know that John also was somehow connected to the high priest uh, in the later part of this book. So we know this is a middle-class, upper-middle-class family. They had connections, but they were not seen as this wealthy elitist. John was still a fisherman. His dad was still a fisherman. But while fishermen were kind of that lower-class, you know, uh, we might say in our in our that on our time and day a blue collar you know worker uh, his family would have been a little bit above that they would have had a little bit more uh, influence in their community and so here we have this middle class upper middle class family John is the first cousin to Jesus who's from Nazareth which isn't too far away a, he's got a brother named James and they're fishermen and in this day John would have been that that zealous, conservative, um, uh, traditionalist uh, young man. He would have been raised in a family that was devout to the Word of God. They, just like in the southern parts of the U.S., we have a slang in our language, we have a draw. That area was kind of that rural 
um, community. They were traditionals. Rome had occupied Israel. Galilee uh, had suffered mighty persecution. They hated Rome. They wanted revolution. Many in that area were looking for the Messiah, but many in that area had also fallen into religiousness and and uh, fallen into the, uh, the, fo- the followings of the Pharisees. And so they were traditionalists. They were religious. But there was something about John as a zealous young person in his teenage years. He said, I'm going to go follow this guy named John the Baptist. So he goes to uh, the Jordan River, which flows out of the Sea of Galilee and goes all the way down to Jerusalem. And he follows this wild-eyed, hairy man with leather and eaten wild locusts and honey. And John the Baptist, uh, he comes from an elite family where his dad is in the high priesthood. And he rebels against all of these things. And he goes out and he's preaching repentance and mass crowds are coming to him. So John from Bethsaida, our John, sees something fiery about this guy. So he's like, so can you imagine like a young teenager jumping on uh, the revival train to go to maybe camp meetings and go to revival meetings and crusades? So this guy, he's, he's a good, in our terms, good Christian kid who's following this revival movement, probably even helping John the Baptist take down his sound system, put up his, his tent, you know, in, in, our, in our modern language. He's, he's one of the roadies. He's a groupie uh, for this revivalist back to the Bible movement. And so John the Baptist, though, uh, is kind of like this mentor for John. And yet we're going to see John uh, of Bethsaida, his, his whole life is going to change. He's about to meet uh, Jesus. Uh, and so here's this, this moment. Um, well, let me just say this about John's fiery demeanor that he's going to pull from John the Baptist and even from his own background. You'll find in Mark chapter 3, verse 14 through 19, Jesus will call John and his brother James son of Boanerges, which means son of thunder. He will, John in his nature is the type that he's got zeal, he's got intensity, he's got power. There's a moment in Luke 9 where he's willing to call down fire on Samaritans who, who don't let Jesus in their town. He, he, he's going to rebuke somebody in Mark chapter 9 uh, about casting demons out in Jesus' name, saying, God, they're not with us. Uh, and so he's, he's willing to rebuke the people who don't fit into their mold. And even there's a moment in Mark 10 where John and James and their mother asked to sit with Jesus in a special place in his kingdom. And so this guy's no wimp. He's a fisherman from a fishing family. He's radical to fall a fiery preaching of John the Baptist. But Christ is going to impact John in such a way that he is going to understand who he is and he's going to be moved by the love of Christ. And later in his work, John is going to be portrayed as one of the most lofty, uh, gentle-spirited apostles of Christ that is filled with compassion. So if you've got a Bible, or if you're just listening online, you can look at this in John chapter 1, verse 35. And here's what it says about John's call. Again, the next day, John the Baptist stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, uh, he, he walked and he said, Behold! the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. Jesus turned and seeing, followed them, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, Teacher, what are you? where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. John never references himself or his family uh, in, this, in his gospel. And it's really out of this Christ-like humility.
But here we find John with Andrew. He meets Christ uh, as a disciple of John the Baptist. And this account is so memorable to John that years later, he's even recording the time that he met Jesus. He says it was about the 10th hour. Now, this guy is old up in years, writing this stuff down, and he remembers the moment that he met Jesus. Do you, if or you're saved today, do you remember the moment that you met Christ? I mean, he remembers the day and the time and the hour. That's how impactful uh, Jesus, an encounter with Jesus was for him. And you can go on, and, and in Matthew, there's a moment where John and uh, his brother are called again. So this, let's kind of paint the picture. John's with uh, John the Baptist. John is with John the Baptist, and him and Andrew are groupies. And John the Baptist, who's also supposedly a cousin of Jesus, sees Jesus coming and says to them, Hey guys, stop following me. Look at that guy over there. That's the Lamb of God. Go follow him. And so they follow Jesus to this hotel and say, Hey, uh, you know, basically, can we stay with you? Can we learn from you? And Jesus is basically inviting them into a journey with him. Now, but it's not yet official. So they, they're investigating this guy named Jesus, who John the Baptist has sent him to. And there's a moment when John and his brother James are fishing with their dad. And just a little bit down the shore, there's two of their friends, Peter uh, and Andrew. So Andrew and John are good friends. Andrew's with his brother, brother Peter fishing, and uh, John is with his brother James and their dad fishing. So they're all close. They're all, this is all these people are either related or, or very connected. Jesus shows up again now at the Sea of Galilee. They know who he is. They've already been set on him, curious about him. They've heard about him. And Jesus comes and says, leave your nets and come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, Peter and Andrew... Uh, Andrew's already told Peter about this guy. They both officially leave their positions and enter into Jesus' school of ministry. That phrase would have been a, a known phrase, to come follow me, meant to join my school of ministry. I'm a rabbi, I'm a teacher, come follow me. So in that moment, John and James uh, leave their dad in the boat, and Andrew and Peter leave their boat and they take up this school of ministry with Christ. So it's not like the, some stranger just walked up to them and said, hey, come get out of your boat, come follow around me around the lake. No, they knew what this was, and they had known about Jesus, and that John the Baptist said he's the Messiah. So it wasn't an uneducated decision. It was on purpose. They intentionally left their career choice and said, we want to go into ministry. So think about that. What does it say about their life and their character? So now, John is now becoming one of the innermost circles of Jesus. He is friends with him, him along with Peter and James. It doesn't say why Andrew wasn't part of that big four. But uh, as a Jew, can you imagine what it would have been like to follow what you think is the Davidic Messiah? And along this journey, John looks back and he writes uh, of himself, but he never mentions his name. Look in John 19, John 20, John 21. He only mentions in his gospel that he says, I was the disciple that Jesus loved. John becomes one of the closest and most devout men to Christ in those three years they'd have together. And throughout his gospel, instead of using his own name, he simply keeps saying, I was the disciple that Jesus loved. What do you think he referenced himself like that? What do you think he referenced himself? Was it 
Was it pride that he loved me more than anybody else or that he had a revelation nobody else did? I personally believe it that it was John had, because of what Christ was going to do, and what we're going to see unfold in this story is that John saw the love of Christ in such a way that he was so humble not to even mention his own name. He doesn't do it in a prideful way or just not in another way to uh, just not reference his name at all. I, I believe it was John was stating that Jesus loved him uh, in such a way that he's just, I'm just a simple fisherman who's been so moved by God's life for me. His death, his perfect love. And I'm testifying to you that Jesus amazingly loved me. And even moreover, I'll add to that, that he didn't want to take away. As he's writing, and he's a famous man by now, and he's writing this third, this fourth gospel. There's been Matthew, Mark, and Luke has been spread around the ancient world. It's, it's in many hands in the church. He did not want to take away from the story. Who's the most important character in this story? It's Jesus. It's not me. It's not John. I'm, I'm going to kind of do like how Mark Twain became known as Samuel Clements. It's that um, I, a ghost writing. What, oh, I'm missing the word in my head. But that, that uh, as a pen of another name, just to say, look, you know, I'm not even going to put my name on this story. I'm not going to introduce myself. I'm not going to sign this and autograph this. I'm going to say I'm not even worthy to be on the same page with the name of Jesus. I'm just somebody he loved. What does that say about you and your life? Are you so humbled by his love that you could say, you know what? It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. I'm just somebody that he loved. And, uh, Man, that'd be a testimony of your life. Sometimes in ministry and sometimes in our going and our, our stories, we embellish ourselves so. We like to put ourselves in the narrative. We, we join teams and we take pictures of ourselves doing ministry and giving to charity. And we can get up on a, a music stage or a, a platform. And, and it can easily be all about us. But John simply says, when you really realize who he is and what he's done for you, man, you just want to elevate him and him alone. And what, what, what allowed John to get to that moment? Let's look at, let's go into his ministry time. There were some special witnesses that only John saw. So take this into account, that John uh, was one of sometimes one to three people who saw some of these things. Think about this. He was one of the only people who saw the raising of Jairus' daughter. Remember that ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum in, in Mark chapter 5 and Luke 8? He was one of only three people who saw that little girl raised from the dead. He was one of only three people who saw Christ transfigured on the mount in Luke chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 17. He, he saw his face become glowing. He saw, he saw Moses and Elijah there talking. He saw or heard God speak and say, this is my son. Listen to him. So he's one of the only few people who saw that. He's one of the only few people who saw and heard Jesus teaching on the Mount of Olives uh, in Mark chapter 13. He's one of the only people in the Garden of Gethsemane who saw Jesus weep drops of blood. Now Mark and, and Matthew say that the twelve were all there with him, but the three went even closer with Jesus. And so he was right there. He saw the weeping. He saw the travail. He was one of the only two people to sit by Jesus at the Last Supper. Judas on one side, John leaning next to him uh, on the other. He was also, most importantly in John chapter 18, one of the only two apostles, disciples, to follow Jesus at his interrogation. Remember, at Jesus' arrest, all the disciples fled. But Peter and John summoned that courage to follow. It says in, in John chapter 18, verse 15, that 
Uh, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. See how John doesn't mention himself there. And that disciple was known to the high priest and went in with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the doorside. And then the other disciple, which is John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. See, John had a privileged position, probably ordained by God, that John, the disciple, had some kind of connection uh, in the in the courts of the high priest, something to do with his family. Uh, even though he's from Galilee, even though he's a fisherman, the Bible doesn't say how and why. But John was allowed access. And he wasn't persecuted like Peter. John somehow had some kind of connection. Uh, and John was right there with Jesus during the entire thing. He was a personal acquaintance uh, to Caiaphas, the high priest, and had access to that council chamber. And he even follows Jesus to the praetorium of the governor. That's why we know what happened in the courtyard of the governor, in Pilate's house. It's because John was the only one that was with Jesus. Can you imagine standing there with Jesus in those moments, to hear everything he said, to walk with him through those moments, to walk with the Messiah as he was beaten, cursed, crucified. I mean, to see him accused and, and just stand there and, and to see the, the pain he endures, to see his eyes have mercy for every time someone hits him and he keeps saying, Father, forgive them. I know they know not what they do. John saw all of it. What would that do to you as a person? And there in John chapter 19, verse 25, he's one of five people who stood at the cross. And look at this uh, even further, what it would have done for him. In John chapter 19, verse 25, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, which we interpret to be Salome, John's mom, Mary the wife of, wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, wow, what a statement, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. So, after witnessing the trial and interrogation, John's followed in Christ to Golgotha, Skull Hill, the place of the crucifixion outside the city walls. And before his death, Jesus leaves John to be the adopted son of Mary and to take Christ's own duty to care for his widowed mother. Mary would move with John to Ephesus until her death. And, and it's interesting to think that Jesus left nothing undone when he died, even the practical concern of caring for his widowed mother, uh, he gives it over to John. You must trust someone really good if you trust somebody with your mama. On your deathbed, to say, look, take care of my mama, that's, that's love, that's intimacy. And thereon, John looked and he saw the love. I personally believe that John had blood on his hands. I think through those moments, and I think John was there, the moment that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea take, take him down, I think John had to go away that day uh, just and wash the blood off, either of his clothes or of his hands, and just take in that moment, uh, how real it would be, how real it must have been for him. And so let's go on. He was even one of two, uh, plus Mary, uh, who saw the empty tomb. Now th notice now, 
Here we get into really the change. This is really important. Listen to this. The change now has occurred in John's life. This is the moment that you're going to see really impact him and how he writes his gospel from this moment on. In John chapter 20, verse 1, it was the first day of the week Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb while it was early. It's still dark. She sees the tomb is rolled away. She runs to Simon Peter, and it says, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that. And says to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. And so here's what happens. Peter goes out and the other disciple. They're going to the tomb. They both ran together. Now, John's a young guy, probably a little bit younger than Peter. She, he outruns Peter and comes to the tomb first. But here's what happens. He stoops down and looks in, sees the clothes, but he doesn't go in. Simon Peter comes, following him, busts past John, uh, goes into the tomb, sees the clothes lying there, the handkerchief on uh, all of this is separated. And it says, Then the other disciple, in verse 8, who came to the tomb first, and I think John's bragging that he won the race, goes in also, he saw and believed. Note, he ran ahead, got there first, but didn't go in. Peter went in first, and then John followed. What does that mean? What does it say now about John's personality? The guy who wants to call down fire from heaven, the guy who is with John the Baptist in the desert saying, repent, believe, be baptized, the guy who wants to sit and rule with Jesus and his brother, now is too timid even to go into the tomb. He stands there looking in awe at the empty tomb of the man who had loved him and now had risen. I love this statement. It says, Jesus tamed the wild beast in John, the son of thunder, a manly man consumed and moved now by love. Think about that. Jesus tamed the wild beast in him. He's now consumed by love. And you go on and there's, there's this last moment we'll talk about and then we'll, we'll get into his, his ministry, his old age. He's, on, he's one, of, one of seven people who saw the resurrection appearance and for eight days now the disciples have been shut indoors. They're fearing persecution. They, they return north to the region of Galilee, their home. They're not probably sure of the next step. They begin to return their old ways fishing and mornings come in John 21 verse 1. They hear a guy way off on the shore say, hey, throw the net on the right side. You'll find some fish. And they do it. And it's another miracle, just like it was at the beginning of their ministry. And uh, it says, the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And again, Peter is the first to plunge into the water and swim to sea. Uh, and John waits, but he's the first to recognize. Again, you have a similar of the tomb experience. John immediately knows God. He immediately recognizes him but yet he's slow to act he's so humble to act and to come to him maybe i'm not worthy to come to him maybe i'm not and i think about that love that humility that humble love he's now been impacted by but what happens here now after john and the disciples receive the baptism of the holy spirit you see an empowered love uh in john so for instance peter and john now and then let's talk about just the ministry and we'll wrap it up here in his application, his legacy, and what this means for you and for me today. Peter and John uh, now have been initiated by Christ. They are uh, the ones who have, have been with him at Passover. They've, 
been with him at the betrayer. Peter and John, who's followed the trial, now have been partnered in ministry. They have partnered together in the book of Acts to do some powerful things. So you've got the healing of the lame man and the temple. Peter begins to preach in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are together. They're bold. They're zealous for Christ. And note this. John is now preaching to the same high priest who allowed him access into the chamber. He saw, he heard what the high priest said. He was standing there next to Jesus in front of the high priest. But now he stands with Peter boldly declaring who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. So now in Acts chapter 4, you've got Peter and, and John preaching. In, in Acts chapter 8, you've got John going and seeing the bapti spirit baptizing of believers in Samaria. And all that, and now you, now let's even get more personal. John, in, in Acts chapter 12, he's gone through all this. He's empowered by Christ, but now his brother is killed. Can you imagine James, John's brother, your, your fishing buddy, the one you grew up with, you, you were on the boat with dad and you have all these memories together. His brother is killed by Herod for the love of Jesus. John sees his brother die. He would go on and outlive every single one of the apostles. He would see Peter die. He would see uh, Mark and he'd Matthew and James the Less and the other Judas. You know, all these guys... He would see all of his closest friends killed one by one. It was as if like every every year you get another letter in the mail saying, sorry, your friend's dead. Sorry, your friend's gone. This guy was filleted. This guy was pulled behind a chariot. This guy was boiled in oil. This guy, uh, you know, was beheaded. And he, and he sees all this begin to happen while the gospel is being preached. And he settles in Ephesus and after all the disciples are mostly gone and, and their works have been transmitted around the early church, in about 78 to 85 AD, John knows that, uh, well, really what happens is John sees this false gospel narrative begin to rise up. He sees a new generation of Christians who don't know these firsthand accounts, who've only heard the stories and they begin to get wishy-washy on who really Jesus was. And they begin to get confused as beginnings of Gnosticism, which is like this inner knowledge where you got to have this deeper experience with God, theoretically, you know, um, euphorically before you can have real knowledge. All of these just debates about whether Jesus was really God, really man, all these things begin to just slowly creep in. He writes his gospel in a different perspective, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are all basically the same. They're called the synoptic or similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they basically tell the same story from three different perspectives. It was like if you had three guys watch the same auto accident and the cop got all of their statements, they would be similar, but they probably would be telling things a little bit differently from different angles that they saw the accident. Now, John, he's going to be the guy who was like, up in a high-rise building and watch the whole thing. He's going to have this uh, lofty, universal perspective, and he's going to throw his perspective in on top of, in agreement with the other three, but not like on the ground with him. He's going to say it in a very um, universal, a cosmic way of who Jesus was. And he writes it so that you and I may believe. He would write that, then he would write three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, to deal with even more of the issues that were plaguing some of the churches he, were, he was over. And if you 
know about the book of Revelation, he was kind of over seven churches in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And so he writes three epistles to those churches. He lives with Jesus' mother. He would see her die of old age and bury her. So even add to that loss uh, that he's experienced in his life. He would partner with the Apostle Paul, this new whippersnapper who's preaching to the Gentiles, as Paul began to plant his church in Ephesus, uh, John would begin to become one of the overseers of Paul's church in Ephesus. So there's a special work there. Tradition holds that he would be persecuted under uh, the emperor Domitian, uh, taken to Rome. Uh, in boldness, he's about to become martyred in tradition or legend. says they try to throw boiling oil on him, but it didn't kill him. So they sent him to the Isle of Patmos, which is like Alcatraz, and there on Patmos, John is placed in exile. He works in the prison mine camps as an old man, and he sees this revelation of Christ. He writes this final book, uh, somewhere between 90 to 100 A.D. Uh, again, an old man, outlived everybody. And either on the island or off the island, he begins to transcribe it as he's allowed to, somehow he comes, uh, he's allowed to leave. He goes back to Ephesus and he finishes writing his book, and he dies of old age, somewhere between 89 to 120 A.D., and becomes the only apostle to escape martyrdom. Now, bring all this together, think about what Jesus had done. He allows John, the one who was with him at the cross, to outlive all the others. John has this unique perspective of knowing Christ in a, in a, in a totally different way, maybe than all the other apostles. He goes through the loss of all of his friends and brothers. He, he sees a revelation that nobody else has seen that perfectly matches with Daniel and Ezekiel and all these other prophets before him. And all of this gets compiled now in his letters, in his gospel, in his letters, and in his revelation. And so we're going to take a journey next week and begin this process with John so that you may believe and know really how John saw Jesus. Here's this guy coming from a good family, the son of thunder, this follower of John the Baptist, who has special witnesses of Christ, who follow Jesus through the trial and crucifixion, who's the one who ran to the empty tomb, who's the first to recognize Jesus on the seashore, who has a powerful ministry in Acts, who survives all the persecution, who's given the final revelation of Jesus, and you see... It was so very personal to him. Through John's gospel, you're going to see that this th son of thunder is so moved by God's love. Uh, you're going to see the compassion and love of Christ through a broken world. You're going to see a lofty words that John writes in his first chapter in verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and you beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John's character... And sum it up here, as we close, was changed by the passion of Christ. He becomes known for his gentleness, his kindness, how he taught Christ's love. He'd been with Jesus from almost day one, following every step of the way more than any other. He walks with him by the sea, across the hills to Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives, prays with him in Gethsemane, remains close with him during the trial, watches Jesus breathe his last breath, and this guy's not only his cousin, it's his Messiah, his Lord, his Savior, who dies for him before his very eyes. And after all of his friends are martyred, he reveals this complete picture of Christ and his gospel. And he wants you to know 
it was personal. It was personal to the very end. And Jesus should be personal to you. And that's if anything you get out of today. Is this story personal? Is it personal to you? John, For John, it was personal from beginning to end. He knew the day, the time he died. He knew the day, the time he met him. And he wants you to know him in that way too. I challenge you to go on this journey with us. Read three chapters of John every night over the next 10 weeks as we go through this journey together. And uh, go deep. Go deep in the gospel. Don't just read it as a story or, or just a history lesson. Put yourself in their shoes. See Christ in a whole new way. And I'm going to pray for you today that uh, you would see and be radically changed by the love of Jesus. To know that you and I all have, we all have his blood on our hands. And does that moment, does it impact you in such a way that it changes you? The gospel, the good news that Christ, God's Son, has come to die for the sins of mankind, to redeem you, that the Word of God became flesh and died for you, does it change you? If not, you haven't seen the whole story yet. You haven't allowed it to really get to you. And if you haven't, go on this journey with us. But if you have, would you examine yourself today? Jesus, Lord, I pray today that every person listening to this, God, it would be so real to us. Jesus, that your sacrifice would be real to us, that we'd have a personal relationship with you, to see you're alive, that you love us, that it mattered that you love us, that we are yet just disciples, people that you love. God, it's not about my story. It's about your story. And Lord, that we'd got, get, not get in the way Lord, I pray today that every person who has encountered you, that their life would be a revelation of your love, that their life, Lord, would be focusing on you and pointing others to you, not about who they are, but about how much you have loved them. And Lord, let us take that to heart today in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening online. Follow us on Facebook at SanctuaryFWC.com. Or online at SanctuaryFWC.com. As always, if you have any needs or prayer requests, you can message us on our Facebook page or on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, thanks for being on this journey with you, we, uh, with us. We hope to see you next week.